The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. I'm continuing our study this morning of 2 Thessalonians 1.9. This is our third message on this verse, okay? Um, and I want you to remember the context here. It's very important. Context is always king. Verses 3 through 10 in this chapter are one sentence in the Greek, and they deal with the second coming. That's the theme of this sentence, all right? The subject here is not about what happens in the afterlife. It's about what happens at the parousia. And so that's what we have to keep in mind. This second Thessalonians 1.9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Now the majority of commentators use this verse as a proof text for the doctrine of hell. And that's why we've been talking about it. And I've been trying to demonstrate that this verse has nothing to do with hell. Which is kind of funny because I spent three weeks talking about hell with the verse that has nothing to do with hell. But everybody else says it has to do with hell, and so that's why I'm dealing with it. They take this eternal destruction and they say, boy, this is, you know, this is hell. In our first study, we looked at the word hell in the New Testament, looked at every use of it. It's Gehenna is the Greek there. It should never have been translated hell. Gehenna is national judgment. That's the warning. There's, the nation is going to be judged because of their sin. And then in our last study, we looked at it exegetically and kind of went through and took the, thing, took the verse apart. And we looked at the idea of destruction here is olathros, and it has nothing to do with eternal conscious torment. It refers to death. And I was kind of excited when I got into this because olathros is used of national judgment. The same thing Gehenna is used of. So that just kind of solidified in my mind what's going on here. So to use this verse as a proof text for hell is eisegesis, which is reading into the Bible something that is not there. Like I said, if you see the word hell in your Bible, that's a bad translation. It should never, that concept is not in the Scriptures. That word should not be there. All right, so I feel like I've, dealt with this verse pretty thoroughly and should move on, but it's hard to talk about hell and not deal with Luke 16. Because anytime you talk about it, everybody runs to Luke 16, and that's one of the greatest proof texts on the doctrine of hell. And, and as Andrew read that this morning, if you're paying attention, you could see why people would use that as a proof text. And commenting on 2 Thessalonians 1.9, our verse, Stephen Cole writes this, no one spoke more about hell than Jesus. False. Jesus didn't speak about hell, neither did anybody else. Okay? He spoke of the rich man in hell who was in torment and cried out. First of all, the rich man wasn't in hell. He was in Hades. Huge difference. And we'll talk about that. Okay? But he uses Luke 16, 24 as his spoof text for this, which says, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
So like so many commentators, Cole sees 2 Thessalonians 1.9 as dealing with hell, and he accuses Yeshua of teaching a doctrine of hell in this parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, I want to look at this parable this morning and see if we can make some sense of it. See if we can understand what exactly is happening here. Uh, Luke 16, 19-21, there, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, <clears throat> let me tell you to start with, there are literally hundreds of interpretations of this parable. Okay, I mean... People take, and here's the thing, let me just say this up front, the golden rule of parabolic interpretation is try to find the one central truth the parable is teaching. Many scholars will say don't make a parable walk on all fours. And that means you don't have to poke everything, take everything out of the parable. This means that, and that means this, and you know, make everything into something. There's a story here. There's a one central meaning, and that's what we want to try to find out what it is. Okay. Now, not only are there hundreds of terp- interpretations here, there's a lot of argument of whether it's a parable or not, and that makes a difference too, because many see this as a teaching on the afterlife. And they use this to support the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. But does it? Well, let me start by saying that I think it is a parable. Our text says there was a rich man. Now in Luke 15, there are three parables. And the third one begins, there was a rich man who had two sons. And in chapter 16 begins with a parable that says there was a rich man. Chapter 19, a story is identified as a parable about a nobleman who went into a far country. They all begin in the same way, indicating that they're all parables. So I think this is a parable. Now, sometimes in the Bible, it's obvious when a parable is a parable and when real events are real events. But sometimes the reader, you just can't easily distinguish between things that are taken literally and things that are taken figuratively. So it's not always so simple. Many times when Yeshua spoke in parables, he was misunderstood. And he even said, this is said so those who don't believe, they're confused. They're not supposed to get it. For example, when Yeshua was visiting the temple in Jerusalem, he's in the temple and he says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's quite a statement, right? Okay. And their response was, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? They didn't question him about the destruction. They just said, you're going to raise it. And listen, 46 years, it wasn't finished yet. There was still construction going on at this time. All right. And then the writer says he was speaking about the temple of his body. So in other words, he's talking figuratively, but there he's in the temple. and He talks about the temple. So they say he's going to rebuild this temple. It's going to be destroyed. He's going to rebuild it in just a couple days. This parable of the rich man and Lazarus is unique. Like I said, I I do think it's a parable. If it is a parable, it's unique in many ways. First of all, it's unique because although its style resembles a parable, and also it comes immediately after a series of four parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, and the parable of the dishonest manager. 
But it certainly is not a usual, a usual parable. It just has so many differences. Now, secondly, this parable is the only one in which real people, Abraham and Lazarus, are named. That's what a lot of people want to argue. It can't be a parable because it names people. Well, it can be. Thirdly, it's unique because the teaching in this story contradicts the rest of the Bible's teaching. Now, that's really important. Okay, and we'll talk about that. It contradicts what the Bible says happens at death. Fourthly, Yeshua uses some different phrases here, such as Abraham's bosom, and such as a chasm separating the underworld in, into two separate parts. Those things are only found outside the Bible. Not, that's not taught in the Bible at all. All right? Let me just say here that I don't claim to have this parable all figured out. Okay, I really don't, because, you know, you can argue all the parts. What's this man really represent? What's this really? What's going on here? Let's not try to make it walk on all fours. Let's just try to get the central meaning of it. So I don't have it all figured out, but I'm confident that it's not teaching the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. And hopefully you'll see that. All right. I think the one central truth that this parable is teaching is role reversal. Role reversal. Now, let's look at the context. In this chapter, Christ is confronting the religious leaders' bad theology. They were lovers of money. And he just calls them out and accuses them. In Luke 16, 13-15, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And then it says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and they ridiculed them. So they did not like what he was saying, okay? He goes on, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now let me ask you something. In this context, what is he talking about? What is exalted among men? The Pharisees. They were exalted among men, but he said, but you are an abomination to God. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to these Pharisees who were lovers of money. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. What's exalted among men, which was them, and they exalted themselves anyway, they were an abomination. Now we see from these verses that the emphasis of the parable is actually on the rich man rather than Lazarus. Because he's speaking directly to the Pharisees, and they knew it. And there's no break between you are those in verse 15, spoken to the Pharisees, and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now this suggests that the Pharisees were the audience of this parable. And every one of the parables that Yeshua taught, as recorded in Luke 15 and 16, targeted them specifically. It exposed their incorrect assumptions and expectations. The Pharisees believed that being rich and healthy was a sign that God is on your side. If you're healthy, if you're rich, hey, God's on your side. You're doing good. Conversely, if you were poor and sick, God wasn't with you. That's kind of the same thing the health, wealth, gospel today, isn't it? Well, if you're sick, you must messed up somewhere. You know, you must not be right with God. Well, where's that nonsense come from? That doesn't come from the Bible. 
But in this parable, the rich man, whom all the Pharisees thought was he's the very best Jew, because he's got great rewards waiting for him in heaven, but he finds himself in torment. And the poor man, who was in the mind of the Pharisees, not a very good person because he was poor, he was sick, he was ushered by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, to be at the side or the bosom of Abraham represented the closest place of fellowship that you could have with anybody. The one who the Pharisees believed was not a good child of Abraham winds up in the closest place of fellowship there is. He's in Abraham's bosom. It was the Pharisees who had adopted the pagan view, and this is important that we understand this, this pagan view of the afterlife that when you die, you keep living somewhere else. Now, we talked about this in our last study. The Greeks taught the immortality of the soul. And if the soul is immortal, then that's where hell comes from because you've got to have a place to put this immortal soul. It's living on. It's going on forever. So we'll, let's put it in the fire, which can't be literal, right? That's a, you start questioning people on hell, you can have some interesting response. Okay, is, hell a li- is it a literal physical place somewhere? And what happens when people are thrown into it? I throw things in fire. You know what happens to them? They're gone. <laughs> They're gone. I could put a half a quart of wood in my fireplace and take out, you know, just a little bit of ashes because it's just gone. It's burned up. All right. The first century Jewish historian Josephus describes the Pharisees as having a belief in this place of pre-resurrection afterlife. He writes of the Pharisees. They hold the belief that an immortal strength belongs to souls and that there are beneath the earth punishments and rewards. Now get that. This is, what the, this is the Pharisees' doctrine. Beneath the earth. This is Sheol. All right? Punishments and rewards. Now this is this two separate locations in Sheol, this divided place where you got people being blessed and you got other people in torment, and they're looking at each other, and they're talking back and forth and all this stuff, all right? It's a pharisaical doctrine. For those who in life devoted themselves to virtue or vileness, and that eternal imprisonment is appointed for the latter, but the possibility of returning to life for the former. So the, la- the bad people get stuck there, the good people get out of there at the resurrection. Now Luke's picture of the realm of the dead looks very much like the one that was very common at his time in the Mediterranean and the Near Eastern culture. This was a common belief. This idea of a compartmentalized place in the afterlife was not biblical. It's not biblical at all. I I just marvel that so many people hold to this idea. This comes from the Pseudepigrapha. The Book of Enoch describes a compartmentalized place of the pre-resurrection afterlife. And there are four compartments. Enoch 22 is the chapter that deals with this. And from there I went to another place, and he showed me in the west a large and high mountain, and a hard rock, and four beautiful places. So he's got this thing divided up into four different places. And inside it was deep, wide, and very smooth. How smooth is that which rolls, and deep and dark to look at? So he says there's separations also in this place. In verse 9 he says, And he answered me and said to me, These three places were made in order that they might separate the spirits of the dead. So we got got to separate the dead, good dead, bad dead. And thus the souls of the righteous have been separated. This is the spring of water 
Okay, so there, the good people have water over there. That's why I say dip your finger in water, cool my tongue in this place, and on in the light. All right, so this parable fits with the view of the ancient Near Eastern culture of the realm of the dead, which comes from the pseudepigrapher work. All right, now keep that in mind. He says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. All right, the Pharisees who are listening to this would have known immediately who Christ was referring to. Who's the rich man? Well, let me ask you this. Who in Israel is dressed in purple and fine linen? The high priest. Speaking of the priest's garments, Exodus says this, Exodus 28.5, they should receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So you got purple and fine linen. The Pharisees would have understood that this man dressed in purple and fine linen was the Jewish high priest. The high priest, when Yeshua spoke this parable, was Caiaphas. And we all know from the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote a detailed account of the period in his antiquities of the Jews, that Caiaphas, he met all four of the qualifications of the rich man that we find here in the text. He was rich. He dressed in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. And in his lifetime, he received good things. Those all fit the high priest. And it seems like they fit a lot of Catholic priests today too. Josephus also records that Caiaphas served as high priest from 18 to 35 A.D., which was the time of Christ's ministry. Now, anybody know who Caiaphas' father-in-law was? Annas was the high priest, and he was removed from office by the Romans because he openly resisted them. But behind the scenes, he was still in authority. He was still in charge, okay? So Annas is not named high priest. He's behind the scenes running things, okay? Kind of like, yeah, shadow government, all right? Kind of like what we got going on right now, all right? Now, with this history in mind, let's look at a couple of things that it says about the rich man. Now, just keep in mind, this is a high priest. This is referring to Caiaphas and Annas. And it says, and he said to them, this is later in the parable, he says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Now, Abraham could be asked, I mean, the rich man could be asking Abraham to warn Annas, his father-in-law, about this judgment. Okay, so can you send someone to my father's house so he'll warn them? And then the text says, I have five brothers. We need to warn them so they don't come to this place of torment. Now, it's probably just a coincidence, right? But Caiaphas' father-in-law, Annas, had five sons, all of whom were high priests. And Josephus records, now the report goes that this elder Annas proved the most fortunate man, for he had five sons who had all performed the office of high priest to God, and he himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formerly, which had never happened to any other of our high priests. So it's just, I mean, you know, come on, coincidence, right? Just all kind of fits in place, right? Well, Abraham responds to the rich man's request to send someone to his brothers with this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. All right, now think about what's going on here. He says he's tormented. 
Can you send someone to my father's house to warn my five brothers? And the response is, well, they got the Tanakh. They got Moses and the prophets. They just need to listen to them. Well, let me ask you this. What did the Tanakh, what did Moses and the prophets have to say about the afterlife? I'll wait. Nothing. Nothing. So how are Moses and the prophets going to help them if they don't talk about the afterlife? How is that going to be a warning? You know what the Tanakh does talk about a whole lot? The destruction of Jerusalem. And the warnings about that that are going on. So it, to me, it's like, okay, they got most in the prophets and they keep telling you Jerusalem's going to be destroyed because of your sin. So what's happening here, how I see this, is this rich man, he's trapped in Gehenna. He's trapped in national judgment. The temple is being destroyed. The thing is burning down. And he's saying, look, go, go warn them about this. No, they got, they got the Tanakh. They just need to pay attention to that. And in verse 30, he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, do we know that's true? This assertion is proven true. Yeshua raised a real Lazarus from the dead, but that miracle only enraged the Jews. They got mad. Can you imagine? This guy's dead. Yeshua raises them, and now they're mad. They don't stop and think, this might be the Messiah. No, they don't even consider that. They just get mad. In John 12, 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. We've got to kill him too. We're going to kill Yeshua, or we're going to kill Lazarus. We can't have people rising from the dead. And Yeshua himself later rose from the dead, and they still would not believe. And because of their unbelief, the temple was destroyed, and they were scattered like autumn leaves before the wind into all the nations. They died to all their former privileges, died as a nation. And Dr. Lightfoot on this subject says this. He says, the main scope and design of the parable seems to be this, to hint the destruction of the unbelieving Jews. That's it. These unbelievers, they're going to get wiped out in national judgment. Who, though they had Moses and the prophets, did not believe them, nay, would not believe the one even Jesus rose from the dead. For that conclusion of the parable abundantly evidenced what it aimed at, if they hear not Moses and the prophets. Now, all right, now that we know the rich man was probably referring to the high priests who were just so off base, they were so far from God it wasn't even funny. All right? Let's see if we can understand who Lazarus is. We've got a man named Lazarus. Now, this man is begging, okay? He's, it says he's covered with sores. He desires to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table, so he's begging. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, some people say that this represents the Jewish class that, you know, they weren't in the priesthood. They were just normal, the Jewish people who were being starved to death. And that would fit, okay, because, you know, they weren't being taught the truth. And so they're begging. And the begging maybe is not just because they're poor. The begging may be because of the disease they had. He says he's covered with sores. And according to the law of Moses, a leper would have been ceremonially unclean. We see that in Leviticus 13, 46. 
He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease, he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, when the Jew contracted a disease, they became unclean. They were most allowed only into the outer court of the temple. This meant that unclean were no longer allowed to eat from the sacrifices offered in the inner court. And there's similar language to this, which makes me lean more towards He's referring to Gentiles. Lazarus represents Gentiles. But like I said, these, that's not the important thing in the parable. It's a central theme. All right? But I lean more that Lazarus represents the Gentiles. Because in Matthew 15, you have the story about the Canaanite woman who's a Gentile. And Yeshua says to her that it would not be appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Remember that story? And the words used in her reply would identify her with the beggar Lazarus. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So, the uncircumcised Gentile proselytes of Judaism were referred to as gate proselytes or strangers inside the gate. And they enjoyed certain rights and privileges under the Mosaic Law. And this parable may be condemning the rich man, the hierarchy, the priesthood, for leaving Lazarus outside when the law obligated Jews to provide for foreigners. Israel was always to be a light to the nations. They never were. Why? Because they hated Gentiles. <laughs> like, we're not going to tell them this. We don't like them. So they never carried out their mission as God intended them to do. And Yeshua is saying that the weak... The unclean, the poor, the Gentiles, they were denied spiritual food by this ruling caste of high priests. So Lazarus the beggar could represent Gentiles. In regard to divine knowledge, they'd been poor and would compare to the Jews because they didn't have the Word of God. They had no knowledge of God. They didn't have His law. In verse 22, he says, The poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died. And was buried. All right. Nowhere else in the Bible does it say that when men die, they go to Abraham's side. It's funny to me how many people believe this. You know, that there's these two compartments in Sheol, and it comes all from this parable. All right. But this, again, nowhere else in the Bible does it talk about this. Now, in other translations, it reads the bosom of Abraham, meaning the lap of Abraham. Mentions of the bosom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been found in burial papyri and early rabbinical legends, the bosom of Abraham was where the righteous went. But it's not biblical, all right? Other than here, it's the only place you're going to find it in the Bible. So the idea is just not there, but it was popularly believed in the day. So this parable is using cultural images to teach a lesson. Again, these are the ideas that these Jews had. Now, the idea of Abraham's bosom came from something they picked up probably while in captivity in Babylon because this idea is found in the Babylonian Talmud. So that maybe is where they picked this up. Now, notice here that they're both dead. Okay? Rich, poor man's dead. Rich man's dead. Um, does this sound like the traditional view of hell? Not exactly. 
Well, when you read the story, you know, it kind of sounds like, okay, we see a guy, he's being tormented in the flames, and he's crying out, and, you know, so people say, well, that's the traditional view, that's what the traditional view teaches, so they just kind of see this, that parable's talking about hell. Well, you got to start with hell to get the parable to be teaching about hell. But there are elements in the story that teach that the story has zero to do with the idea called hell. All right? This is the Hades being in torment. So yeah, it's okay. And listen, we read earlier that Cole said he's in hell. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. It says Hades. Does it matter? I mean, it's just a word, right? <laughs> this story has zero to do with the idea of hell. All right? The idea of being tormented in Hades is a view that you will never get from the Tanakh. You won't find that all through Moses and the prophets. The story that the Lord uses here is most likely taken from the book of Enoch. Okay? This idea of torment and different compartments. And although I think Enoch is very helpful in understanding, because Enoch is the context of the New Testament. The New Testament writers used it. They quoted from it. They believed these things. It's my view that it's not Scripture. And I've done a message on Enoch and why I don't think it's Scripture. But it was familiar to them. It was important. And Enoch seems to be teaching that there are compartments in Sheol and that there is consciousness, that there is suffering, there is communication in Sheol. Look at Enoch 22.10. Likewise, a place has been created for sinners when they die and are buried in the earth. Okay, so they die, they go into the earth. Judgment has not come upon them during their life, and their souls will be separated from the great torment, for this great torment. So they, again, the bad people go to one side, the good people go to another, until the great day of judgment and punishment and torment for those who curse forever and of vengeance on their souls. So Enoch, chapter 22, does teach the same thing that we see in this parable. Most people recognize, hey, this comes from Enoch, and it does. The problem here, which is a big problem for me, this contradicts the teaching of the Bible. Enoch is contradicting what the Bible says. So you got to choose. You want to pick Enoch? You want to pick the Bible? Where are the rich man and Lazarus? They're both dead according to this parable. So, According to Scripture, where do people go when they died prior to the Lord's second coming? Sheol. Sheol. All right? They went to Sheol. The text says, and in Hades. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol. They're both in Sheol. They're both conscious. The rich man's suffering. They're communicating. This view of Sheol goes against the teaching of the Tanakh on Sheol. You can go through the whole Tanakh, you're not going to find anything that's similar to any of this stuff. So let me ask you this. Are there contradictions in Scripture? Thank you. What's the primary rule of hermeneutics? The analogy of faith, which is Scripture interprets Scripture. That's the primary rule. Because no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict, which clearly taught somewhere else in Scripture, because the Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So the analogy of faith is a safeguard that should prevent us from reading into Scripture something that's not there. So here the Lord says, in Hades, they're in torment. 
That goes against the whole Tanakh. There's nothing in the Tanakh about that at all. So is Scripture contradicting itself here, we have to ask. Does Yeshua teach something that is in conflict with the Tanakh? No, He doesn't. So what's the Tanakh teach us about Sheol? Well, prior to the completion of Yeshua's Messianic work, which was finished in AD 70, not on the cross, it was the, it, the from, AD, from Pentecost to AD 70 was a Christ event. All right, that 40-year process was a transition. 1 John 5.20 says that Yeshua is eternal life. And nobody had eternal life until the age to come. Here's a verse I'd like you to look up in commentaries, commentaries because most people skip it. They don't talk about it. That's the best thing to do. If you don't understand, just skip over it. All right, They don't even comment. They just skip. Some, some were brave and say, I don't have a clue what this means, but... Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So the Jews believe in two ages, this age and the age to come. The Bible talks about that all through there. The age to come is the age we live in. So if prior to Yeshua's finished messianic work, no one went to heaven, where did people go when they died? They went to Sheol. Now in the Tanakh, the Hebrew word for where they went is Sheol. In the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades. Same place. What this place was is not something everybody agrees on. Okay, Jeff and I don't agree on this. We keep going back and forth on it. But most scholars see Sheol as either the grave or some sort of reference to a place in the earth to which everybody goes. The latter view is part of the three-tiered cosmology of the ancient Israel and the A&E peoples. All right, this is ancient Israel's cosmology. Okay, they taught a flat earth with the dome, and underneath you see Sheol down there. Okay, that it's a subterranean compartment where souls or spirits go. So they're disembodied. So I don't know how you lock a spirit up in a cavern. I'm not sure about all that. The Israelites did believe and taught that Sheol was a subterranean place. And so people say, hey, look, this is what the Israelites believe. And I agree with that. And I say, so what? You know, the Israelites also believed in the cosmic tree. All right? They believed that running through the center of the earth is this gigantic tree whose branches go into the heavens and roots go down to Sheol. I don't know anybody that believes that today. Just because the Israelites believe something doesn't make it true or right. Okay? Can you, are you with me on that? The issue is not, what did the Israelites believe? The issue is, what does the Bible teach? Because a lot of times, they're way off base on that. Okay? The Judeans of Yeshua's time viewed their Messiah as a warrior prince. Okay? He's going to expel the hated Romans from Israel. Remember, they're under bondage to Rome. And their warrior prince is going to set them free. And they're going to be promoted to world dominion. Now Yeshua sought to wean his disciples from that traditional notion of a warrior Messiah. He kept trying to teach them, you know, the road to glory goes through the cross. And there's going to be experience of suffering and rejection and humiliation. They didn't want to hear that. Their warrior, and that's why they rejected Christ. 
He's humble. He's dying. They can't have a Messiah die. They needed victory over Rome. They rejected it. That's the same reason people reject the second coming. They want a physical event, re, you know, redo the whole planet, plane, redo it all. Can't get planet out of my head. Planet does literally mean plane, though. So Yeshua taught them that his kingdom was not of this world. It wasn't a physical kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom. And so they Jews, they were really upset, and that's why most of them rejected him. He wasn't what they wanted. So some see Sheol as a place or a realm where spiritual souls of the dead, they're awaiting resurrection. They're down there, they're waiting. Some see it as a state of existence which there's no consciousness. You're not aware of the passage of time. You don't know anything, you're just there. I guess your soul sleeping. Some see it as a semi-conscious state. I don't know what that means. I guess you wake up every now and then and say, hey, oh, hey, you know, and then you're back to sleep, so you're semi-conscious. Some see it uh, as a conscious state. Like, they're all awake down there, they're talking to each other, and they're carrying on, you know, and someone says, where's my body? You know, what happened to me? Why am I here? Most see it as a subterranean holding tank for departed souls. That's the common view of Sheol. This is my view of Sheol. Okay? Sheol is the grave. Guess what? It's common to everybody. When they die, where do they go? They go to dirt. They take a dirt nap. Okay? You heard that expression? That's a good biblical expression, a dirt nap, because you're going to be resurrected. You know, so it was just a nap. Now, throughout the Tanakh, we see this fact in numerous passages where death and Sheol are placed in parallel. Psalm 49, 14. Like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Now watch this. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. Well, the standard view, they don't have a form. Their souls are their spirits. But does this fit the grave? You throw somebody in the grave, what happens? Their form is consumed. They're on. So whether you think Sheol is a place or death, it doesn't really matter for this discussion. What really matters is that Sheol was a place where all men went prior to resurrection. What is also important is that we understand that the Bible makes it clear that there's something beyond Sheol for the righteous. And that's what the Hebrews believed. All right. Notice Hannah's prayer. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. So again, we have death and Sheol. We have going down. We have coming up. Rising up here is a little tra- literal translation and it speaks of resurrection. The idea of coming up out of Sheol, which I see as the grave, and notice this upward language is also used in Proverbs 15. The path of life leads upward for the prudent that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. So you're coming someday, there's going to be a resurrection. Now this upward idea is contrasted with Sheol, which is below, which is the ground. In Hannah's theology of Sheol, to die is to be brought down to Sheol where all the dead are. Everybody's there. To be resurrected from that condition is to be brought back to life. And this is something that only Yahweh can do. Now, the Tanakh uses a lot of different metaphors and similes to describe Sheol. The bottom line is, I think, it's death. And if you look up every reference in the Tanakh, and I've done this several times, I just can't get past the idea that he's just talking about death in the grave. It's not a realm. It's just death. You go and you're, 
When someone goes to Sheol, he is dead. He doesn't cease to exist, though, because he's taking a dirt nap. All right? In 1 Kings 2.10, David slept with his fathers and he was buried. All right? He died. But the Bible says he slept. Why would he say that? Because he's going to come out of that grave. All right? 1 Kings 11.43, And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried. So when men died, they went to the grave and they slept until the resurrection. That's what Daniel tells us in Daniel 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's going to be a resurrection of those who are sleeping in the dirt. So until the resurrection that happened in A.D. 70, sleep in the dust of the earth is what men were doing. Now listen, this is not a subterranean cavern. It's a grave. The hope of Israel's resurrection, that Yahweh would raise them from death, and God had promised to redeem His people from the grave. Hosea 13, 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where's your sting? Where's that quote in the New Testament? That's right. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes that. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So these verses express, we also see this in Psalm 49, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. These verses express the hope that God is going to provide salvation beyond the grave. And one of the few references in the Tanakh to life after death. They anticipate the clear New Testament teaching of life after death, of eternal life, of salvation from God. Now in our parable, we see men in Hades, they're talking. And they're suffering. But in the Tanakh, we don't get that idea at all about Sheol. It talks about there's no remembrance of you. Look at Psalm 6.5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. Now, they're supposed to be in Sheol, right? In Sheol, who will give you praise? Well, the people in the good half with the water, shouldn't they be praising God that they're not in the bad half? I would think they would be. I would be. Psalm 88, 10 through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Do they? Well, we'll see in a minute they don't. Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now, the question here is do the departed rise up to praise you? And it's answered in Psalm 115, 17, the dead do not praise Yahweh. Nor do any who go down into silence. Again, this doesn't fit the parable because we got people down there talking. If the dead are conscious, why aren't they praising God? I mean, you're in the good half. You got water, you got night, you're in Abraham's bosom. Uh, thank you, Lord, I'm not on that side. Okay? Psalm 6 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. Well, that doesn't fit. Sheol, who will give you praise? This passage affirms that Sheol Hades, which is death, there's no remembrance, which is an attribute of conscious existence. No one gives praise. This seems to be evidence that Sheol is a place of unconsciousness. But to make that point even clear, 
The dead being unconscious in Hades. Look at uh, Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work, there's no thought, there's no knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. Nobody's thinking in Sheol. Okay? Nobody has knowledge, nobody has wisdom there because they're dead. Okay? They're enjoying their dirt nap. Psalm 146.4 When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that day, his plans perish. Not planning anything, not doing anything. Now elsewhere in the Tanakh, we see that death is perishing. There's no pain. There's no consciousness. There's no suffering. There's no talking to anybody. Notice what Yeshua teaches about the dead in John 5.25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So those who were dead, they hear Yeshua's voice, and they come to life. So are those in Sheol considered to be dead or alive? Well, most people, they're alive in Sheol. Well, according to this, they're dead, and they're going to become to life. Dead people are coming to life. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So where are the dead ones? They're not said to be in Sheol. They're in tombs. At the resurrection, they come out of the tombs, which is the grave, and all, he says, all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out. This is synonymous with the dead coming to life. Now, this voice of the Son of God is life, is the life-giving voice of God. This is one of the themes of the fourth gospel, is that Yeshua brings life from the dead. So, in my Bible, prior to Christ's parousia, all go to Sheol without moral distinctions, because the grave's common to everybody, all right? There is no clear case of punishment in Sheol. It's in the pseudepigrapha. It's not in the Bible. Because this is not applicable to the grave. The idea of being tormented in Hades is a view that you'd never get from the Tanakh because judgment hasn't happened yet. They're resurrection, they're resurrection, Daniel says, to judgment. That's what Yeshua says. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Why would they be being judged before they even go to the judgment? So if you think this parable is about the afterlife, let's look at some questions about this. He saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. So let me ask you, do you think people in heaven can see people and talk to people in hell? Would you like that? <laughs> Being in torment, he says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Are the torment in hell pleading with the residents of heaven to offer relief? If someone in heaven having to state reasons why we can't help you people in hell as they're crying out, would you enjoy heaven as you hear your loved ones scream in agony for eternity? Does that sound like a great thing? Does that sound like heaven? Do you think that a drop of water on the tongue would somehow ease the suffering of someone being burned alive? I mean, what's that request even about? Can you just dip your... Yeah, well, split second, really. Probably vaporize before it hit his tongue. It's, you know, we're in flames. 
What exactly did Yeshua teach His disciples about the timing of God's judgment of sin and sinners? Well, in John 6.40, He says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him would have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. All right, the last day. John 12.48, The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him when? On the last day. So he's saying judgment takes place on the last day. That's the last day of the old covenant age. So how is the rich man suffering before the judgment? Christ taught that the dead are in their graves until the judgment. Now in his book, Protestant Biblical Interpretation, Bernard Ram says this about parables. We talked about this earlier. He says, determine the one central truth the parable is attempting to teach. This might be called the golden rule of parabolic interpretation for practically all writers on the subject mention it was stress. Yes, read anybody about parables and that's what we're going to tell you. Determine the one central truth. In a lot of the parables, the Lord gives us, you know, explains the, the different parts to it. But when He doesn't, we've got to find the one central truth of the parable. So what is it? I think it's this. Matthew 21, 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Remember, he's talking to Pharisees here. And given to the people producing its fruit. I think this is what Yeshua is telling the Pharisees in our parable. He's telling them that you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. You're going to experience fiery judgment. National judgment. This parable, as I said, is about role reversal. They thought we're the children of God. We're okay. These other Gentiles... They're, you know, fuel for the fire. This is a parable about the torment and literal destruction of Jerusalem that the rich Pharisees would go through because of their rejection of the gospel. This is what's going to happen to them. And, and oftentimes, I think most times in the New Testament, you see the word fire, it's talking about judgment, and it's talking about Jerusalem. This is the judgment that was coming. This was the, what they were warning them about. You reject your Messiah, you're going to be destroyed. It's not about some place in the afterlife. It's about something that was going to happen to them. The rich man represents Israel. I think Lazarus symbolizes the Gentiles. And at the coming of the gospel, these people exchange positions of advantage. The rich man who previously fared sumptuously every day, he's now in torment. And the deprived Lazarus, they find himself in Abraham's bosom. Because of the gospel, the Gentiles are in, the unbelieving Jews are out. It's just totally flipped. Okay? They never expected that. Something that we must understand here is that this parable is not a story that Yeshua just made up from scratch. Okay? He is using a story the Pharisees themselves might have used, but He's turning it against them. There's a consensus among the scholars that this parable Yeshua is using familiar story and adapting it to His purpose by adding an unfamiliar twist at the end. The story of the wicked rich man and the pious poor man whose fortunes were reversed in the afterlife seems to originally have come from Egypt and was popular among Jewish teachers. So He says, in Hades He's in torment. I'm in anguish in this flame. This parable is not about the afterlife. It's about the coming judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. 
It is about the end of Old Covenant Judaism and the fulfillment of the New Covenant promises. There's nothing here about eternal conscious torment. Okay? These flames are the flames of war. The destruction here is Jerusalem and the temple. And if you think through this, you know, first of all, just the idea of being in Hades, anything we know about Hades wipes out everything in this parable as far as being a true fact. It's not. There's no, there's no two compartments in Hades unless you want to stick with the pseudepigrapha and reject the Bible. All right? Hades, Sheol, was the grave. Men died, they went into the grave, awaited the resurrection of the dead. And at the resurrection, bodies didn't come out of graves. Men came out of graves, went into the presence of God, received an eternal spiritual body, and dwelled there forever. But it didn't happen until the resurrection because it wasn't finished until the resurrection was complete. Heaven was open. Those men who had trusted Christ went into heaven at that time. All right, I feel pretty confident that I'm done with verse 9. It only took us three weeks. Three hours on one verse, okay? So hopefully you got something out of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Lord, I pray you'd give us the heart of Bereans, Father. We would not accept things we hear. We'd not reject them. We'd study them. And Lord, I pray that no one believes this because I'm saying it. They'd believe it because they studied it out themselves and find if this is so or not. Give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. May we dig in your word. May it be important to us to understand, to know, to follow the truth that your word lays out. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen. Okay, yeah, Gary. <clears throat> you delivered. How many hours did you spend studying? <laughs> More than three. <laughs> Gary, or, um, Dave, sorry. what was the purpose of Jesus giving these parables? Did he expect um, Jewish listeners to, to hear that and repent? And do you think? I don't think so, because he said that it's it just confuses those who don't believe, you know. So I think he was just attacked. They knew he was attacking them when he told these things, you know. They knew it, but they didn't get it. They just didn't seem to understand it. And again, he's dealing with the Pharisees, and he tell here's the story. Guess what? You guys are going to be in torment, not the other way around. But a lot of the parables, you know, the disciples didn't get. It. Hey, what 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 did you mean by that? You know, and he goes, Wow, you guys don't get anything, you know. Talking to the Pharisees, attacking the Pharisees. Obviously, they didn't even get the Ten Commandments. They were they were disobeying the, the Tanakh there because they were feeding themselves, luxurying themselves instead of taking care of the loose and orphans and all the things they were commanded to do. So they didn't even get what was written and plainly in front of them. They didn't get it at all. Yeah. They didn't, you know, it just wasn't important. And the, the Lord attacked them on that. You don't know the scriptures He told them. That was a huge insult to them. They're supposed to know it. He goes, you don't know the Scriptures. You don't get it. And at that time, the, the things were so corrupt. Money changers are in the temple, and they're ripping people off. I mean, they just turned the whole thing upside down. And that's why the Lord went in and cleared the temple out and said, this is just a mess, all right? You guys are totally, they're, they had totally corrupted it by then. But that just seems, seems the way men go, you know? I mean, God created Adam, put him in a perfect environment. Guess what? The dude messes up, right? Now, I saw a cool meme last week that had Adam and Eve in the garden and the apple on the tree and the snake saying, you know, 
why don't you take the apple? And in the next picture, Adam and Eve are sitting on the ground, and the snake is on a spit roasting, and it says, if Adam and Eve were carnivores. <laughs> One of my carnivore groups had that in there. I thought, that is awesome, man. That is awesome. You know, No, we're not listening to you, snake. Matter of fact, we're going to eat you, okay? Because we don't eat fruit, but we do eat meat. <laughs> I just thought I got a kick out of that, you know, but that's, I mean, they just, they rejected the truth. And so Adam rejected. And then, so God chose Israel because the whole world went away. He chose Israel. And guess what Israel did? They went away too. It's just like, you know, basic line, bottom line is God's got to do it. Okay. Because men are a mess, you know. Well, even when Jesus rose three days later, they paid off the soldiers. Yeah. Yeah, bribery. In government, who would ever believe such a thing, you know? The people in government would be paid off to lie about something. <laughs> wow, you know? What was the, there was a movie out, I don't know, what, I don't remember what it was called, but it was about the story about after the crucifixion, from a Roman centurion's point of view. Maybe it was called The Resurrection, I don't remember. But it was just such a good, because it made you think about, you know, the Romans going, we can't find the body. Why is there no body? And he's starting to, you know, think through this thing. You know, too often we don't put ourselves in, in the culture and in the event that's happening, you know, and they're saying, well, they stole them. Okay, what'd they do with it? The body's got to be somewhere, but they couldn't find it. Uh, okay, I don't know who this is from. Pastor Curtis, what would you say about Matthew 11, 21 through 24? It seems that there are two groups having a different experience on the day of judgment. That leads me to believe that the judgment is more than destruction, which would be the same for everyone. Thank you. Well, there are two different groups, okay? There's the righteous and the unrighteous. And Daniel talks about it. Yeshua talks about it in chapter 5. There's the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the unjust. The unjust get they're, they're gone, okay? The righteous get life. So yeah, there is two different groups. And I, you know, judgment is more than destruction. Judgment is perishing. You're gone. Now, I don't, some people don't think that's a judgment, okay? So the choice is, do you want to live forever or you just want to go, you know, like the animals? Um, Definitely called risen. Okay, risen. It's just, like I said, I like the movies that take you behind the scenes and make you think about things, you know. And that's what, you know, I, I stayed away from watching The Chosen because I don't like any movies about biblical stuff because they're so far off culturally and everything else. And The Chosen, believe me, they got a bunch of white people playing Mid-Easterners, okay. So that's kind of crazy to me. You know, it's funny how all these people are white. You should be closer to black than he would be to white, Okay. But anyway, I really like the way The Chosen portrayed Nicodemus. I mean, you could see the torment in Nicodemus's mind about the events that were happening. You know, he knew there's something here. You know, he healed Mary of these demons, you know. He went to Mary. He saw that she's demon-possessed. Now she's fine and in her right mind. He goes and talks to John the Baptist because he's just so like, intrigued and he knows something's happening. I think they did an excellent job on that. Okay, um, Gary and Chris, you got to keep this shorter because I can't be reading a book up here. Good morning, Dave and brethren. It was an incredible blessing to see the conference streaming live. I'm glad you were blessed by watching it. 
You know, the thing is, I guess that's the next best thing to be in there. But being there, you know, really the focus of the conference is fellowship. And just if you just want to hear lectures, you can do that online. But to be with those people, it's just an exciting time. We just couldn't get there. I'm still laughing at what you were talking about at the end about how much work went into it all. You said your wife, Kathy, just kept writing the sermon. <laughs> Sermons and I'll do the preaching. Yeah, I did make that comment, didn't I? I gave it away. <laughs> Reminds me of the movie Pollyanna where her aunt was writing all the pastor's sermons. Also, there is a legend about the parable of the story of Duma, which I'm sure you're aware, I'm not, which is kind of similar to the parable of the rich man. Some comment that Yeshua used the story to condemn the Pharisees and the unbelieving Jews your thoughts. Yeah, that's what I said. I think that's what he used it for, to condemn them, you know, because of their wrong ideas. Uh, Bill Gant says, the movie was called Risen. Thanks, Bill, but my wife beat you to the punch. <laughs> Thanks, though, Bill. I appreciate that. All right, anybody else? Questions, comments? Gary? Um, you mentioned the body goes into the grave. The body goes into the grave. What, what about cremation? Well, it, I don't think that matters. The idea is you're gone. You're going to decay and rot away, you know, whether you're burned up or rot away. I don't, I don't think it makes any difference. God has no problem. You, you know, are going to be, you know, if you're a believer, you don't have to worry about what happens there. Okay. Yeah, that's the thing. And uh, we don't, we have a Greek concept, not a, not a Hebrew concept. And the Hebrews viewed man as a whole. They didn't divide them up. You got a body, you got a spirit. They didn't see man that way. You were a, man was a being, okay? And so that wasn't two separate parts. Or that, that's more of a Greek idea that infiltrated the church and infiltrated theology that, again, I think we're better if we kind of try to stick with what the Hebrews viewed their scriptures as. <clears throat> but that, again, it doesn't mean, you know, a lot of times people say, well, the rabbis said, and I said, what rabbis? The rabbis were just like Christians. You know, you could say, well, the Christians say, what Christians? What, this church over here or this church over here? They all had different views. You know, so what the rabbi said is, I wouldn't take much stock in that, okay? Anybody else? We done? All right. We didn't get a chance to practice the last song, so I'm just going to close in prayer, and we're going to go home. And, Mike, thanks for jumping in and helping out this morning, man. That was like last minute, boom. He hadn't even been to church yet, and he comes with his guitar and stick him to work right away. Um, but I love that. Okay, that's that was awesome. But I got bad news for you guys. You you're sitting in the McCormick seat, <laughs> and so no no McCormicks. You haven't been replaced. They didn't know any better. They're just sitting in your seats because you weren't here. So we'll have them. <laughs> trust me. They're engraved in those seats. <laughs> All right, thanks for being here, those watching live. Always appreciate you coming again. The conference messages are all up. They're up on YouTube. They're up on Livestream. They're up on Rumble. They're up on Gab. So just go watch them, enjoy them, uh, share them. Thanks for being here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, Lord, and the opportunity again to look at your word. Father, may we tremble before it. May it be so important to us that understanding it is the word of the living God. May we seek to follow, to honor you, in all we say and do, thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right, folks. Have